Amen. If that doesn't get you ready to preach, I don't know what will. Thank you, Pastor David, Miss Pat. That was great. Is it well with your soul today? I pray that it is. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5. So today we're going to look at what our Lord and Savior has to say about the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now as our next few moments we look at your word, that you would use your word, God, to convict our hearts, to encourage and equip us. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us, God, and that the uh, words of my mouth, Lord, would be the words of your mouth and nothing more and nothing less. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we actually get into the text about committing adultery and what Jesus has to say about it, I feel like we need to spend some time today to to lay a foundation for the overall sanctity of marriage. When Jesus was talking to his disciples and to the crowds at large, for the most part, the crowds had a presupposition, if you will, of a biblical sexual ethic. And so we can't, I feel like we can't just start and leap into the text. So if you would allow me for this week to sort of take a step back and take some time to uncover what God says about biblical sexual ethics, about marriage, uh, before we kind of go into what then Jesus says about the seventh commandment, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. So in today's culture, we can't talk about committing adultery, what it means, what Jesus is saying, unless we first understand the biblical ethics of marriage and of sex. So we got to know where we are in our culture in this matter. If you didn't notice, we're declining in this area. And in last year, and I've stated some of these statistics, but if you haven't looked at Ligonier's theological survey, they do this survey every two years. It's called the State of Theology. Uh, and it's a very scientific survey that gives us a pretty good grasp of what our culture believes, uh, what it doesn't believe, what evangelicals believe, and that so on and so forth. But in last year's survey... One of the questions that was asked was this. Do you agree with this statement? And the statement is this. The Bible's uh, condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. So in other words, the prohibitations that God gives uh, of outside the sanctity of marriage with homosexuality, do you believe that that doesn't apply today? And overall, uh, probably not to our surprise, is that 46 of respondents... Uh, agreed with that statement that that behavior doesn't apply today. God condemning that behavior doesn't apply today. Uh, What's startling is that of those recipients overall, 42% that attended church several times per week agreed with that statement. 42% of respondents that attend church several times a week agree with that statement that the Bible's condemnation of uh, homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. So that kind of shows you the state of the church, or you could say it shows you the state of the apostate churches, because that's, that's indiscriminate of what type of church they're going to, okay? 
Uh, so that's just people who attend church several times a week, almost half, a little over 40%, agree that the Bible is condemning that homosexuality doesn't apply today. But here's some that's a little more startling, is that 30% of these uh, survey respondents say or that claim to have an evangelical belief agree with that statement. Okay, so 30% of evangelicals, it says, agree with the statement that the Bible's condemning of homosexual behavior is not for today. That's almost a third. Uh, I think all of us have a lot of evangelical friends, do we not? And I want to define how the study defined an evangelical because I'm always weary of, okay, people who say they believe in God, you know, I want to know what that means. And it's actually pretty solid. The way that they classified somebody who is an evangelical was someone who believed these four things. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It's very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty for my sin. And number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So respondents that believed in those four tenets, they classified as evangelical. I think those are pretty strong statements. And almost 30% of them agreed with the statement that the Bible's condemning of homosexual behavior uh, is outdated, is not for today. So that's almost a third of your friends would agree with that statement or waver in some manner. And I, I believe this has been a long time coming. There's a lot of history of our, of our country kind of going in this direction and Christians and Christianity following. Uh, but just, just to go back a few years, uh, on January 26th and 2015 was when the Supreme Court practically made same-sex marriage legal across the country in its, uh, in its ruling. If you remember that time, I remember that time. I remember talking with Christians who were already being swayed. They were already being swayed. Well, you know, maybe God, yeah, maybe marriage is between a man and a woman, but, you know, maybe the government doesn't have a role to play and just any, let anybody marry. I mean, I was hearing that from these evangelical Christians. Some of you have probably heard the very same things out of the mouths of your friends, have you not? And so it's been said that culture or da- politics is downstream from culture, but I believe it actually flows both ways. When the Supreme Court issued that ruling, many people took that as a morality statement. And that's where you saw evangelicals begin to compromise in that area. Go, well, the Supreme Court, maybe they have a point, right? Uh, and then just this past year in December, December 13th, 2022, you know, eight years later, uh, President Biden codified uh, the same-sex what the Supreme Court did eight years ago. So he codified and signed into law the Marriage Equality Act, again, which codified same-sex marriage. Republicans and Democrats voted overwhelmingly to pass that in the Senate and in the House. Uh, Now, overall, during the same time, another uh, study found that 68% of Americans favor uh, same-sex marriage. 68% and Eight years ago, it was 54%, just in eight years. From the time, around the time of the Supreme Court decision, it went from 54% of Americans believed in same-sex marriage. So again, you got to factor in the California 
and factor in the South Carolina, okay? California is way higher. South Carolina was way lower. Uh, but in those eight years, overall, it went from 54% that favored same-sex marriage to 68%, a 14% 14 point increase in those who favor same-sex marriage. So we are seeing a rapid, this is happening fast, a rapid downward spiral into our literally own self-destruction, uh, if not God's specific destruction upon our nation for the sexual revolution um, that we're saying, we're seeing. Recently, I saw the United Nations, uh, they, now they're saying minors can consent to sex. Uh, they said, quote, sexual conduct involving persons below the domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex may be consensual in fact, if not in law. So we see these grotesque, sick things coming out, but there's absolutely nothing off limits when you have a society that's abandoned objective standard of morality, when you have a society who's abandoned objective standard of truth, when you take truth out of a culture, then you get what we're seeing. We see the culture continue to make this rapid shift in sexual perversion and immorality. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, we see the church just floating along right with it. We see the church just going downstream. They're a little bit behind, okay, but they're just floating right down there along with it. Now, I wish I could say that it was only our secular humanistic society that's attributing to the rapid downward trend of sexual immorality. But unfortunately, that is not the root of the issue. We also have movements of so-called gay Christianity who are led by those who build very convincing apologetics that would allow for Christians to live in openly gay, lesbian, transgender relationships. And these gay Christian advocates are very appealing to the young, Christian, the young, uh, uh, the young generation uh, because they actually have convincing arguments. When you have these what sounds like convincing arguments out there in the culture, and then you have the majority of churches and pastors not saying anything, it's no wonder why we're losing this next generation to this mass confusion of, of gender identity and sexual immorality. It's just no wonder. <clears throat> so who's to blame for this downward spiral of depravity in our culture? Is it the left? Is it the liberal left that's perpetuating uh, these godless ideologies for the sake of their political power? Well, you could say, yeah. Is it secular humanism, which is a religion that has a, a, a standard and has a tenets of their religion? Yeah, you could say it's their fault. They're to blame. Is it Satan? Yes, absolutely. Satan is behind much of this. Is it God's judgment? I would say yes. Much of this is God's judgment upon our culture. But while all that is true, I contend to you that much of the blame is upon the Christian church and particularly pastors, teachers, who preach the word of God. Francis Schaeffer, about 40 years ago, said this, quote, Most fundamentally, our culture, society, government, and law are in the condition they are in, not because of a conspiracy, but because the church has forsaken its duty to be the salt." Of the culture. That was Francis Schaeffer. I believe he said that in his book, Christian Manifesto. 
and that was some 40 years ago. How much does that ring true today? Those that have been entrusted with proclaiming the whole counsel of God have become like jellyfish, unable to stand in the face of adversity and unable to stand with the smallest amount of opposition. And this opposition, and in many cases, is not even opposition outside the church. The opposition is usually from within the church. You have pastors that are afraid to offend the very people that God has entrusted them to shepherd because they're afraid of losing their seat. They're afraid of losing their job. They're afraid of, uh, of being offensive and have adopted the cultural mindset of the love of Jesus and the tolerance of Jesus. Just, just love them. Uh, there's a uh, WWJD hermeneutic that is incorrect. Okay, yeah, we should ask absolutely what would Jesus do? But the way that that movement has gone is that, that a Jesus has been created that doesn't even exist. And this is like, you know what? Just love like Jesus. Don't be offensive. Uh, just love like Jesus. And if what somebody is saying doesn't match up with the Jesus they've created, then it's, then it's hate. It's offensive. They have this Jesus WWJD hermeneutic that is uh, not correct. We need courageous pastors uh, who are willing to speak what the Lord says, even when it's not popular. So that being said, I want to provide today a biblical framework of sexual ethics and the sanctity of marriage. So we have to start in Genesis chapter 1. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. The first thing I want to look at are these creation ordinances or creation mandates, they're called. A creation ordinance is something that God ordained at the very creation of mankind, and they're very important. We need to pay attention to them. They help us build a framework for all biblical uh, ethics and morality. Creation mandates include things like uh, the dominion mandate, that mankind was made to have dominion over the world. There's a mandate of work. Uh, This is pre-fall. Okay, there's a mandate of of work. There's a mandate of the the Sabbath rest. This is a creation ordinance. And I want to look at uh, the mandate for procreation and marriage. Procreation and marriage. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth there's the dominion mandate verse 27 god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we have uh, have the dominion mandate, but we also have two mandates. Uh, We have the procreation mandate where he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So this is what's called, again, the procreation mandate. He's telling mankind, have kids. And we're always teased because we're, 
we, people tell us, well, you must have taken God really seriously when he said, be fruitful and multiply. And I said, yes, I did. Thank you very much. Because God says the fruit of their womb is a reward and not everybody can have lots of children. But if God gives us the ability, we ought to because that's fulfilling the procreation uh, mandate. Uh, we also see, and then flip over to chapter 2. This is going to tie together with marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. It says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, <clears throat> and they shall become one flesh. Here you have the marriage creation mandate or the creation ordinances. And what we need to understand is that the procreation ordinance, uh, the ordinance or the mandate that God gave mankind to have kids fill the earth, and the marriage ordinance are not separated. You can't take them separated. There are actually two ordinances uh, that are dependent upon each other. Man was tasked to procreate, to have kids, to fill the earth with their posterity. And the mechanism to do so is within the confines of the marriage ordinance. One man, one woman, in a monogamous marriage. Children, monogamous, mono means one. A monogamous uh, relationship. John Murray puts it this way. He was considered one of the most conservative theologians in the English-speaking world. And of these two ordinances, he says, marriage is the institution established by God for the fulfillment of the procreative mandate. You cannot separate the two mandates. An attack, an attack on either mandate, procreation or marriage, is a face-to-face -face attack upon God, upon his sovereignty, upon his order, and invites cursing upon the land. Marriage is a blessing. Therefore, an attack on marriage brings a curse. Children are a blessing. Therefore, attacks on children or procreation brings upon a curse. And we see both the perversion and condemnation of any twisting of those ordinances very early in scripture and we see it throughout the bible but it's very early even before the law of moses we see the condemning of sexual immorality in genesis 18 and 19 with sodom and gomorrah god told abraham that the sin was exceedingly great and that's played out as the men of the city Remember what they did. They went to Lot's house and they sought out to rape the two men who were angels in Lot's house. We see the sexual perversion and we see God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah very early on in the Bible. Now there's the gay Christian apologist who will try to make claims uh, that it wasn't sexual immorality, it wasn't homosexuality. Uh, they say things like, you know, the, the men of the city, it just says that they wanted to know the men in Lot's house. They didn't want to uh, have sexual relations with them. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of problems with that because Lot said, don't do this wicked thing, right? Obviously, they knew what was happening. 
Uh, so there's a lot of bad arguments. It's very clear that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual immorality. So that was before the law of Moses. And we even see in Genesis 20, we see another example uh, of God condemning any activity outside of the confines of a monogamous relationship. You know the story, right? Abraham lies to the king, uh, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. He lies to the king and says, no, this is my sister. Uh, And it's a half lie, which is a whole lie, kids. It was half sister, but he was deceiving and it was a whole lie. Uh, And so the king, Abimelech, takes Sarah and he's going to take Sarah to be a wife, right? But God visits Abimelech in a dream and says, Behold, this is Genesis 23, if you're taking notes. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is married. This is a pagan king that God is getting ready to condemn because he is committing adultery. He is taking another man's wife. And what's interesting about that Uh, In addition, that it gives us a very early example of the sin of adultery. That God would not allow Abimelech to take the woman who is already married. In addition to that, if you look at how Abimelech responds, he doesn't respond as a pagan king and say, oh, I didn't know that it was wrong to take another man's wife. He didn't respond that way, did he? He responded by saying, Lord, in the innocence of my heart, I didn't know that she was married because he told me he was his sister. So you see there, it presupposed that this pagan king, pre-law, pre-Moses, the time of Abraham, knew and understood the biblical sexual ethic that we see, that he was forbidden to take another man's wife. So then we get to the law of Moses, we get to Exodus 20, uh, and it's within leading up to the law, uh, to the Ten Commandments, It's within this understood framework of marriage. We see the marriage ordinance, one man, one woman. Therefore, a father shall leave his mother and father and and, or a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined with his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Right there, God gives the example and creates the sanctity of marriage between one man, one woman that was passed down through generations, it was understood in some sense, although skewed. We've come to Exodus 20, where God gives the Ten Commandments, and he gives the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So adultery in its truest sense is taking another man's wife. But the way that God gives this is sort of an umbrella sin for all sexual immorality. It's the umbrella sin for all of sex outside of the confines of marriage, okay? Whether that's homosexuality, whether that's lesbian, whether that's, um, whether that's pornographic sex or that type of, those type of sexual deviations from what God has instituted as a very loving and as a very blessed thing between one man and one woman, anything outside of that uh, falls outside or within the confines of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not Uh, commit adultery. Uh, And then in Leviticus 18, turn there with me, Leviticus 18, God gives sort of an exposition of 
the seventh commandment. Leviticus 18. So throughout this chapter, God provides more details on what is prohibited when it comes to sexual ethics. And then in chapter 20, he repeats most all of these and gives the penal sanctions uh, at the t- uh, for, for his people on if these things happen. But we're not going to go through the whole chapter. But just to kind of summarize, God condemns various sexual sins throughout this whole chapter. In verse 6 through 18, God condemns incest, okay? Uh, and then in verse 18, if you look, God condemns polygamy. Uh, so he says, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival. And that was condemning all polygamy. The, the cultural norms was to marry sisters, and that was polygamy, polygamous relationships. So God sets the foundation in the marriage creation, one man, one woman. And here in verse uh, 18, he condemns polygamy. And then in verse 22, he condemns homosexuality. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Verse 23, he condemns bestiality. You shall not have intercourse with any animal. Listen, friends, there's, there's, in the spectrum of things, you think some of this is so grotesque, and it is, and you think it's not very possible, but it is. And when you take objective standard of truth out, you know, 30 years ago, no one would have ever thought that would be, there would be any acceptance of pedophilia. And there still isn't, obviously, but you used to have groups out there that are trying to be accepted for pedophilia activity. And so bestiality, there are parts of the world that are trying to be accepted uh, for that. <clears throat> now, this whole chapter, God condemns all of these types and various sexual sins, And there's some, both inside Christianity and outside Christianity, that would say, yeah, but Mark, but that's not not for us. Uh, That's for Israel. That was specific uh, to to Israel during that time. Those sexual sins aren't prohibited, so therefore we can do these other things. Well, if you look at, starting in verse 24, let's just see if this is just for Israel. It's the same chapter, 18, verse 24. After God condemns all of these various sexual sins, which, by the way, the whole chapter is on sexual sins, but look at verse 21. In the middle of these sexual sins, prohibiting having intercourse with your neighbor's wife, with your blood relatives, with animals, with uh, men and men or women or women, look what it says in verse 21. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In verse 20, or chapter 20, where all of these, uh, most of these are repeated with penal sanctions, it does the same thing. It's like in the middle of all of these sexual sins, it's like, oh, by the way, don't offer your offspring to Molech. Okay. There's a direct relationship. I, I, I just point that out because there is a d- direct relationship with sexual immorality and child sacrifice. If you look at America and the sexual revolution, what came right along with that was abortion advocates and abortion rights. We want to be able to do what we want sexually, and we, we want to kill the thing that happens as a result. And we see it the same thing in the time in this land. You had the sexual immorality, and then you had 
When the baby was born, they would sacrifice that child to the god of Molech, and God's condemning that here. That's just a side note. But back to what, <clears throat> what we were talking about. Were these uh, sexual sins condemned by God only for Israel? Look at uh, verse 24. It says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, the things that we just read about, right? These sexual sins. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these sexual sins, the nations which I am casting out before you became defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall do none of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does these abominations, those persons who shall do, uh, who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as to not defile yourself with them. I am the Lord, your God. Can you read that and say that these sexual uh, immoral acts that God condemns throughout the chapter, can you read this and say, no, that was just for Israel during that time? These sexual ethics don't apply to other nations. He repeats himself multiple times that these nations that were before you defiled themselves by doing these things. What things? Homosexuality, bestiality, incest, polygamy, all of these things that these nations did before you, and he said, I am spewing them out. God's judgment upon these nations were spewing them out because they were doing these things that defiled them. So these sexual ethics uh, were not solely for a place and location in time, but these sexual ethics were objective standards and are objective standards of morality that transcends time and location. This text, these texts tell us that the biblical sexual ethic of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman is the only standard given by our creator and sustainer of the world for all people for all time. And the pattern continues throughout the Old Testament. And let's get to the New Testament now, Mark chapter 10. Flip over to Mark chapter 10. We have the Pharisees coming to Jesus, trying to trap him and asking about uh, divorce. And, and God says, starting at verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. Now, uh, just hold tight because Jesus talks about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, so we're going to get to that. But listen to what he says, verse 6. <clears throat> but from beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one 
flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus is pointing back to this creation ordinance. And listen to what he says. This is like the the nail on the coffin, he says, speaking about marriage as a whole. Not just specifically one wife and one man. He's speaking about marriage as a whole. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 9, there, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He's speaking about the, crea- uh, the creation ordinance of marriage. He says, What God has joined together, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, man shall leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, what God has brought together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. No, no man separate. And if it wasn't clear enough, flip to Romans chapter 1, where God is basically bringing the whole world into the courtroom and declaring them guilty. Uh, look at some of the sins that he says in Romans chapter 1. Starting at verse 26. For this reason, what reason? The reason that all of the, the unbelievers suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because unbelievers did not acknowledge God as God, even though they knew of God, because God made it evident to them. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. We're going to talk about that more next week degrading passions what type of passions well he says for their woman women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So it's very clear, is it not? Paul uses this wording natural functions. The women exchange their natural functions. Men exchange their natural functions. And how did they do that? From men committing indecent acts with other men. It's so very clear. It's not just the overt act of sexual immorality, it's desiring uh, to be with the same sex. And again, we'll get to that uh, later uh, next week. Uh, and then one more passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flip over there, it's a few pages, 1 Corinthians 6, Marie verse 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So homosexuality is one, uh, one attribute that Paul gives for those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, and so you don't just have that sin in this passage, so we're not picking that out, but what I wanted to show you was that this is there on par with the other sins that are marked by unbelievers, those who continue in the sin of drunkenness, those who continue in unrepented sin uh, of fornication. You know, that could be fornication between a man and a woman, or idolaters, uh, or those who uh, perpetually commit the act of adultery. And so homosexuality is included in one of those sins. 
So I hope you can see that there's a common thread throughout all of Scripture that God instituted, God has an objective standard of truth when it comes to marriage between one man, uh, one woman, and it is a blessing. And when we, when we twist it, uh, when the, even the government twists it, it invites cursing upon our land. So you might say, and many Christians have said, well, you know, what is society and what does the government have to do with that? What, uh, does the government truly have the right to regulate marriage? I mean, you know, they're not hurting each other. And isn't regulating who can marry who like regulating morality? You can't regulate morality, Mark. Have you ever heard that? We shouldn't be regulating morality. Well, here's, here's how I would answer that. First of all, we must understand that all laws are moral in nature. Laws are not neutral. When the government enacts a law, what are they saying? They're saying that you cannot do this or you must do this. And if you don't, here are the consequences. So every time a piece of uh, legislation is enacted, either state or federal, they're making a moral declaration on what is good. Do this because it's good. And if you don't, here are the consequences for it. So you can't get out of uh, the morality of, of laws in our land. And even the Marriage Protection Act that was enacted last, last year, that was a, a moral law. It said that states, sovereign states, we live in South Carolina, some of you North Carolina, you sovereign state must recognize marriage between a man and a woman and if you don't, here are the consequences. They're making a moral declaration. If you don't do it, it's bad. If you do it, it's good. So we can't get away from that. You must recognize that there's no neutrality. So the question, brothers and sisters, is not whether the civil government should regulate morality, because they do. The question is, by what standard will the civil magistrate regulate morality? Uh, Greg Bonson once said, and I'll paraphrase that, he said, if there's no divine law above man's law, then man's law becomes absolute in his own eyes, and therefore there's no barrier towards totalitarianism states. Meaning, if there's no divine law, God's law, above man's law, then man's law becomes absolute in his own eyes. And isn't that what we're seeing in today's day? That whatever man comes up with, that becomes absolute in their own mind. For instance, what is the standard for marriage right now? What is the objective standard of truth for marriage in our culture right now? If you could tie it to, to one standard, it would be this. The standard right now for sexual ethics is, right now, consent. Consent. That is the standard that our society has decided this is the standard for sexual ethics, is consent. As long as both parties or all the parties consent, the government is saying that it's okay. And much of Christianity is adopting the same mindset. Consent equals morally permissible. So I want to ask you, is that your ethic when it comes to to sexual, uh, sexual morality. Is it consent? Is it as long as nobody's getting hurt? I mean, what's wrong with two women having a relationship or two men? I mean, they might be hurting themselves, right? But they're not hurting others. 
Uh, even, even heterosexual adultery has moved in our culture to being okay because, you know what, they consented. The two parties, consent was the standard. So society doesn't, they don't care about the overt act of adultery. It's not a big deal. What, what, what is the big deal, they would say. The, the two parties consented. They just stopped me to making it a big deal and then just get divorced and then go live your life, right? Like adultery is not even a thing. People don't blink their eye anymore. Just get a divorce. Uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago that many states still enforced uh, the sin of adultery as a crime. And many states still actually have it in their law as a crime for, uh, for adultery. It's just not enforced. You may think, well, that's way too extreme, right? But we have to be renewing our minds with the word of God. Now, I found uh, in my study this leading advocacy group for sexual health called the American Sexual Health Association. Uh, it's the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, advocacy group for sexual uh, health, they call it. Uh, which includes advocacy for reproductive health, a.k.a. baby murder. Uh, But they lobby at Washington. Uh, People look to them for uh, advice on sexual health. And they say this, quote, that as long as there's no, that there is consent and no danger to anyone involved, there's no right or wrong way to attain sexual pleasure. This can involve having multiple sex partners. Well, I just want to ask, says who? Who's the authority? Who made this the standard of truth, that consent is the way that we should govern sexual ethics? We have to have a foundation, and we do. It's the word of God. So our government does have a standard by which they are required to regulate, and they have it wrong now. The standard is the word of God. So yes, I would say the government does have a duty, to set the guardrails around marriage. This is to protect society and ultimately to submit to Christ and his rule and reign. If you think about the seventh commandment, how that it's just been obliterated in our culture, you don't think that that has has had a negative effect in our culture? I mean, what does a society look like when it abandons moral ethical standards of the seventh commandment what does a society look like when it gives way and makes consent its standard for sexual ethics well you see a society like we live in today don't we you see a sexual revolution you see sexually transmitted diseases which by the way research shows the higher number of sexual partners a person has the higher percentage of sexually transmitted diseases they have. There's even studies that show that, that people are at extremely higher risk of cancer later in their life the more sex partners that they have, okay? So you have sexual revolution, you have STDs, you have abortion, you have mass confusion. When you have a society that is, that is abandoned the seventh commandment and abandoned the biblical sexual ethic uh, that God has given us, you have what we have today. You have suicidal rates at an all-time high because there's people that are growing up confused about the gender that God's given them, confused about what's permissible, what's right and wrong, and we have no objective standard of truth, so you see this uh, culture that's just spiraling downwards. 
And within this sexual revolution, you have child sacrifice as a direct result, as I mentioned earlier. Our culture is literally self-destructing like right before our eyes, and it's happening so fast. And again, you may ask, or it's been asked by other Christians, maybe even from a sincere heart that says, well, why should we give so much attention to this? I mean, shouldn't we just focus on the gospel? Why, why speak so loudly about this? Why take this to the culture? Why not just love and give people the gospel? Why worry about this? It just causes division. It causes uh, offenses. Uh, just share the gospel, Mark, and let God change hearts. Well, first of all, this is very much part of the gospel. This is very much part of the gospel. If you leave this glaring elephant in the room of sexual immorality, which we see rampant in our culture, if you leave that out of the gospel, it's part of God's law, is it not? Amen? If you leave it out of, of the picture, now you have a truncated gospel. You, gotta, you don't have the full gospel of Jesus Christ. If you affirm somebody that is in this lifestyle outside of the biblical ethic of sexual, of sex, and you don't tell them the truth, then you're not giving them the gospel. You're only giving them a truncated or a part of a gospel. Okay, if I knew somebody that was a perpetual thief, and that was their forte, they stole lots of things, they stole big things, and that was their whole lifestyle. And I gave them the gospel, and, and, and yeah, but what about my stealing? Well, you know, just leave that up to God, right? Or, well, you know, it's really more important to trust in Christ. If you affirm the person and not tell them, no, you know what? God says thou shalt not steal, and that's a big problem, and you need to repent of that and come to Christ and live. If we leave that part out of the equation, friends, then we're not loving our neighbor. We're hating them. We're hating them straight to hell by not telling them the truth about what God's word says about sexual immorality. Uh, Second, we see throughout Scripture that biblical sexual ethics— are prescribed to all people, not just God's people. Think about John the Baptist. He didn't stay inside the church. He took God's biblical sexual ethic and took it to a pagan king and told Herod that you cannot have your brother's wife. He told him, it is not lawful. John, don't do that. Just give him the gospel. Just give Herod, just love him. Give him the gospel. Uh, someone forgot to told John the Baptist that. No, he took the word of God and the truth of God and took it to Herod, the pagan king. Third, look at the role of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus. Uh, Jesus said in John 16, 8, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he says he will come and will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And how does the Holy Spirit do it? In some mysterious, mystical way? No. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin by using your mouth, my mouth, to proclaim the true standard of righteousness. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts the world. So you might ask, well, what do we do then? Where do we go from here? You know, what's the therefore? Okay, now you have all these truths. Therefore, what? Right? Well, I would say this. Therefore, because of all these great truths that we know to be true of biblical sexual ethics, 
And because of our love for neighbor, our love for our children and our children's children, and our love for the people in our society who are confused and in this downward spiral, because of all of these truths, we must, we must open our mouths. We cannot be quiet no longer. We must boldly proclaim with love and teach the culture to obey Christ in the area of marriage. We cannot be quiet any longer. With love, we must boldly teach the culture to obey Christ in the area of marriage. Proverbs 29:25 says, "The fear of man brings a snare, a trap. When you fear man more than you fear God, that invites a trap. That word in the Hebrew was used as a, a trapping for a large animal. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The hateful thing to do, brothers and sisters, is to keep your mouth closed. So for the good of our neighbors, both now and the future of our posterity, I encourage you to open your mouth and lovingly and confidently stand on the beauty and glorious institution of marriage. It is glorious. What's your view of marriage? You see, I contend to you, if you have a low view of marriage, you have a low view of God. I want to conclude by looking at Hebrews chapter 13. Turn, if you will, with me. Hebrews chapter 13. Very familiar passage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So here we have the writer describing marriage. Marriage is is to be held in honor. And that word honor is used throughout the Bible as something that's precious, like the precious blood of Christ that we were bought, as Peter says. That word is used as, as something great value, something of great price, something very rare and precious. And we should hold marriage Esteem marriage. It should be held very dear to us. It should be held, it says, in honor among all. And that's a preposition that means among all or by all or in all. The writer here is emphasizing the sacredness of marriage is to be held in honor at all times. Past, present, future by all people, believers or non-believers. Marriage is a beautiful Thing. So I want to conclude by asking you, before we get in next, next time to Jesus talking about the seventh commandment, uh, adultery, I want to ask you, what is your view of marriage? Husbands, the Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. What is your view of marriage? Is it a low view? Do you need to repent of having such a low view of marriage? Or do you, do you have a high view of marriage? Is it precious to you? From Genesis to Revelation, marriage is woven throughout Scripture as precious to God. It should be precious to us. From the creation ordinance of marriage to God illustrating his love for Israel as a marriage 
to Christ and the church as an illustration of marriage, to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. All throughout Scripture, marriage is important to God, how God created it, and it ought to be. It must be important and esteemed by us. It ought to be held in sacredness and honor. And when you have a culture who is attacked, they're not attacking marriage. They're not attacking you. They're attacking the very God of the Bible whom they hate. And friends, it's hard and it's going to get harder. But until you have a high view of marriage and a high view of the, of the sovereignty and the rule and reign of Christ, you will have the fear of man and you will not be able to speak. It's hard. It's hard to speak to people who are so vicious to, towards God and towards any truth. They love darkness. But friends, we got, we have to get, we have to get it deep in our soul that marriage is beautiful. It's honoring. And those who attack marriage are attacking your Lord and attacking your Savior. And what are you going to do about it? Are you going to just sit back and say nothing? Or are we going to do what God has called us to do and stand in a loving way, stand for righteousness and stand for the truth that God has given us? So when we have the right view of marriage, the right view of fidelity, we can then have the right framework to go into what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, which we'll look into next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, that you've given us your word, the standard of truth that transcends all time, all places. And Father, you have spoken very clearly in your word about marriage and about adultery and about sexual immorality and any sex outside of marriage. Father, you have spoken very clear. Help us, God, first to evaluate our own hearts. Uh, Father, as we evaluate our own heart, is there anything uh, God, what is not pleasing to you? Where have we fallen short of this biblical sexual ethic? Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to hold marriage as precious, as honorable, as esteemed as you have in your sight. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage and conviction, God, that when we have the opportunity that we can hold firm, Father, to the standard of truth that you've given us in your word. And Lord, as we go from this foundation of marriage, God, to what you said in your Sermon on the Mount, that if anyone looks with lust in their heart, they've already committed adultery, God. Help us to bring that understanding of your, of your um, sacredness of marriage. Help us to bring that understanding so that, God, we would understand more what it means to break the seventh commandment beginning in our hearts. God, we thank you. I pray for all the marriages here, God, that you would build the marriages to be a picture of the gospel. Build the marriages, God, so that the people on the outside would see a precious thing, Lord, and that they would, they would seek the God of the beautiful marriage. By your grace, we pray you would build us in love for you, love for others, love for your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 159, let's stand together.